Good morning, brothers and sisters. These are certainly unprecedented days, at least in our lifetime. And while I would much prefer to be seeing you face to face this morning, I am grateful that God's common grace has provided a way for us to be under the Word together, even if we're not physically with one another. This is unusual, to say the least. And we are very much looking forward to being able to gather together again in one another's company. We pray very soon to worship as a church family. If you haven't gone through the order of service that we provided, please pause the message here and take time to do that. Just as we do when we're together on Sunday morning, it's important to sing God's Word, read God's Word, and pray God's Word together. Those things prepare our hearts to hear the Scriptures. So if you haven't done so, please, please pause here and do that together. Our sermon text this morning is Luke chapter 7, where we'll be looking at verses 18 to 35. Please turn there in your Bibles with me. Luke chapter 7, verses 18 to 35. And if you would, follow along with me as we read now from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by Him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all of her children. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray together. Father, while the circumstances are unusual, both in the life of our church and in the life of our 
community. Father, we know that you are unchanging. And so it gives us great hope and great confidence, Father, and great comfort today to gather together, even though we're physically apart, to gather together under the preaching of your word. We're thankful, Father, for the one Lord, one faith, one baptism that binds us together in Jesus Christ. We're thankful, Father, that your word cannot be contained and that the truth of the gospel cannot be quarantined, but it will surely spread and bring the knowledge of the glory of the Lord to cover all the earth as the waters cover the sea. Father, help us now. Help us to worship you as we ought. Help us to hear your word and be encouraged. Father, please keep me from error. Please, God, help us now to hold fast to the truth. We do pray this, Father, trusting in your sovereign name. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friends, the pressing question that drives our passage today is the same question that drives all of the New Testament Gospels. Who is Jesus? Every Gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, answers this question on some level. Who is Jesus? But our passage is unique in that the question is asked out in the open. John the Baptist, of all people, puts the issue directly before Jesus. Are you the Messiah, or should we look for another? You see, there's no subtlety here. There's no hiding it. What all the Gospel writers ask in the background, John the Baptist brings out in the open. Who exactly is this man, Jesus of Nazareth? But what's most striking about John's question is not that he asked it, but rather why he asked it. You may remember that John the Baptist is in prison at this point. And that little detail is key for understanding the text. You see, it's not an intellectual argument that has somehow turned John into a skeptic. And it's not a new piece of evidence that has created doubt in his mind about Jesus. No, what leads John the Baptist to ask this question is the difficulty of his present circumstances. It's not hard to imagine, is it? As John languishes there in Herod's dungeon, you can understand that he would begin to wonder, if Jesus is the Messiah, then why am I in prison? Why is someone like wicked Herod still in power, while someone like me, who serves God, suffering under this hardship? So it's the reality of life in a fallen world that has brought John to what is surely the most important question a person can ever ask. Who is Jesus, and how do I understand myself in connection with Him? And friends, this is where our passage becomes very instructive for us this morning. In a sense, every Christian can relate to John the Baptist. Each one of us understands what it's like to look at our lives and then ask, if Jesus is the Christ, then why is there so much hardship? If the Gospel is true, then why am I stuck in this lousy situation? Have you ever asked a question like that? I know that I have. Perhaps some of you have been asking it even recently. Why do the wicked seem to keep going up while God's people keep getting stepped on? And that means, brothers and sisters, there's much we can take away from this episode with John the Baptist. I know it seems very historically situated, but there is much that we can take away. The question that John asks is, in one sense, the question that all of us 
have asked, or will ask at some point. Who is Jesus, and how do I understand my life in view of who He is? That's the burden here in Luke chapter 7. Now, in terms of the structure in our text, the passage has three parts, and each part gives us insight into who Jesus is. Look at the text with me. Verses 18 to 23 describe John's question and Jesus' answer. Verses 24 to 28 focus on greatness in the kingdom of God. And then verses 29 to 35 are an exhortation to respond rightly to Jesus. So the passage has three parts. And from those three parts, I want us to notice three truths that I pray will give us greater confidence in this most important of all questions. Who is Jesus and how do I understand my life in view of Him? So let's begin in verses 18 to 23 with the first truth. The Word of God assures us that Jesus is the Savior. The Word of God assures us that Jesus is the Savior. We've already noted the setting for this passage. John is in prison, but he still heard the reports about Jesus, verse 18, and so John begins to wonder, is Jesus the one to come? Is He the Messiah? Now, you have to understand, friends, that John's question, while surprising to us, actually makes sense if you know the context of John's day. In the Judaism of John's day, the Messiah was expected to bring salvation and judgment simultaneously. When the Messiah arrived, it it was expected that He would immediately overthrow the wicked and then quickly establish God's kingdom On earth. That was the expectation that nearly every Jew had in John's day. And that appears to be John's expectation as well. If Jesus is the Messiah, then why is Herod still in power? And for that matter, why are the Romans still around? Shouldn't there be a revolution, an immediate upheaval followed by God's kingdom on earth? You see, that context, friends, helps us understand why John asks the question. It's not that John is an unbeliever, it's not that he lacks faith. That's not it at all. John is rather misguided, which means he needs further insight from Jesus. And in fact, that's precisely where John goes. This is easy to overlook, friends, but it should get our attention. When confronted with doubt, where does John go? Well, verse 19, he goes to Jesus with his questions. Do you see that? John doesn't stew in his cell just going over and over his doubts and and getting deeper and deeper into his misunderstanding. No, John goes to the source. He sends word to Jesus Himself. Brothers and sisters, this may seem like a small thing, but it's actually very important for the Christian life. At times, every believer experiences some level of doubt. Listen, if John the Baptist had doubts, you and I will have doubts, right? Those moments will come. But what we need to see here is that the right response to those doubts is to humbly take them to Jesus. We take them to the Lord in prayer. We take them to His Word and we seek the Lord's clarity. Listen, friends, Jesus is not afraid of our doubts and He's not uncertain about our questions. There is nothing that plagues your confidence that can ever confound or confuse the Lord Jesus Christ. So let this be an encouragement to you, brothers and sisters. The Lord welcomes you, even in seasons of doubt. And there is always a place 
in Christ's kingdom for the Christian who says, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. So, John's messengers come to Jesus, verse 20. And beginning in verse 21, Jesus gives the answer John is looking for. You'll notice there's actually two parts to Jesus' answer. What the men see, verse 21, and then what they hear, verse 22. Look at those two parts with me. First of all, verse 21, what the men see are Jesus' mighty deeds. Verse 21 is an incredible summary of what is happening in Jesus' ministry. Listen again. In that hour He healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind He bestowed sight. Now, as we noted last week, these kinds of miracles are signs that sin's curse is being overcome through Jesus. Disease and death are both products of the fall. So as Jesus performs these healings, it's a sign, it's a signal that sin's tyranny is coming to an end, and it's coming to an end in Jesus. But then notice also what the men hear. Verse 22. Jesus tells them what they should say to John. Listen again. And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. Now, what is Jesus doing here? Is He just repeating what John already knows? No, not at all. Instead, Jesus is giving John precisely what he needs. Jesus gives John confirmation from God's Word. Understand, friends, everything in verse 22 was predicted hundreds of years earlier by the prophet Isaiah. Over and over, Isaiah said that when the Messiah came, the blind would receive their sight, the lame would walk, and the deaf would hear. And so now Jesus' ministry matches Isaiah's prediction. In fact, Isaiah 61 in particular mentioned that the Messiah would bring good news to the poor. Well, what's the last thing that Jesus says about His ministry? Verse 22, He preaches good news to the poor. Do you hear the correspondence, friends? What Isaiah predicted in God's Word, Jesus fulfills in His life. What the Messiah came to do, Jesus is doing. And that is the answer to John's doubt. Don't miss the Savior's wisdom at this point, friends. Jesus knows that at the end of the day, the one thing that can assure John and strengthen his faith is God's Word. And brothers and sisters, that's the takeaway for Christians today. Our assurance flows from the rock-solid reality of God's Word. Our certainty is grounded in Scripture. That's why we're taking this extraordinary means of giving you God's Word today. Because our assurance, our hope, our confidence, our certainty rests on God's Word alone. When the hardships of life begin to shake our confidence, when everything around us seems uncertain, that's the moment that we most need the Word of God. You know, I mentioned to you a few weeks ago about the rise of these so-called deconversions among professing Christians. Some of you may remember that. How there's this increasing number of people who are turning away from their former profession of faith. Well, I heard about another example of that just recently. This time, two prominent Christian podcasters. They also make a lot of videos. 
So I listened to a little bit of their story where they describe how they've uh, deconverted, they say. And do you know where their story begins, both of them? It has a common first step. Where does their story begin? With questioning the authority, the reliability, and the goodness of God's Word. They read a bunch of books that undermined the Bible. And over time, their confidence collapsed. Friends, that's a very telling example, I think. Most of the time, doubt and uncertainty get out of control because we fail to take those things to the Scriptures. Instead of carefully comparing things with God's Word, we slowly move away from God's Word and we hold up other things as if they're equally authoritative. And after time, we listen to those other things more and eventually, the doubt erodes our faith. And so I tell you that story simply to illustrate what Jesus is teaching here. The answer to doubt, the answer to uncertainty, is always to go deeper in the Bible. The answer is always to see how God's Word confirms its own truthfulness. How Scripture interprets Scripture. And most importantly, how all the parts of the Bible work together to demonstrate this grand reality that Jesus is the Son of God who was raised from the dead for our justification. So I don't know where you are this morning. Friends, you may be someone who struggles with whether or not we can actually trust God. Or you may be going through a season like John the Baptist where the hardships of life are assaulting your faith. In either case, friends, the certainty you're seeking is found nowhere else than in the Word of God. Don't give the evil one any room to undermine God's Word. He's been doing that since the beginning, you remember? The evil one's first strategy was to whisper, did God really say? And the evil one is powerful, but not very creative. He's been honing that same strategy ever since. So don't give him any room. Hold fast to the Scriptures, and you'll find assurance, friends, in the Word of God. So that's the first truth from this passage. The Word of God assures us of the truth about Jesus. Let's look now at the second truth. The kingdom of God reveals to us the greatness of knowing Christ. The kingdom of God reveals to us the greatness of knowing Christ. Having answered the question of his own identity, Jesus now speaks to the crowd about John's identity. And Jesus begins by reminding the crowd of what John is not. Notice verses 24 and 25. John is not a man who is soft in his convictions or in his clothing. That's not who the crowd went out into the wilderness to see. If they wanted to listen to a people pleaser or to a prosperity preacher, they could have stayed in Jerusalem. They didn't need to go out to the wilderness. John is not that kind of man. Then in verse 26, Jesus gets to the heart of John's identity. Notice again what the Lord says. Verse 26, What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet. This is He of whom it is written, Behold, I send My messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. So Jesus affirms the popular view of John the Baptist that He is a prophet. But Jesus then goes farther. He tells the crowd that John is not merely a prophet, but rather the prophet. The one who would prepare the way for the Messiah. You see, John's roots, friends, go back farther than Elizabeth and Zechariah. John's roots go back all the way to the Old Testament. That's Jesus' point. 
In fact, he quotes from the Old Testament. John is the forerunner, the one promised in Malachi chapter 3, the one predicted in Isaiah chapter 40. Not, John's not just a prophet, he's the prophet, Jesus says. But then Jesus shifts gears. And just as quickly as he extols John the Baptist, he then moves to contrast him with those who belong to God's kingdom. Notice what Jesus says, verse 28. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom is greater than he. Now, what is Jesus' point here? It's kind of an enigmatic statement, isn't it? On the one hand, John is great, the greatest of all the prophets. But on the other hand, John is the least. So, the greatest and the least at the same time. What is Jesus getting at? Well, friends, it helps to think of a bridge. And imagine that this bridge spans the two riverbanks of redemptive history, you might say. On the one side, on the one side of the river, there is the time of promise, what we call the Old Covenant era. That was the time of God's law through Moses. It was the time of the prophetic promises of the Messiah's coming. But on the other side, on the other riverbank, there is the time of fulfillment, what we call the New Covenant era. This is the time of God's kingdom, the time of the Gospel's good news. And Jesus' point in verse 28 is that John's ministry is like that bridge that spans the riverbanks. John's ministry stands in between the two eras. He is the greatest prophet of the Old Covenant because he's the last one before the Messiah. But at the same time, John is not yet part of the Messiah's era of fulfillment. John's ministry is not taking place in the time of the Gospel's consummation. Remember, friends, John will not see the resurrection of Christ. John will not see the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. If you divide redemptive history into two periods, promise and fulfillment, then John clearly belongs to the former, though he looks ahead to the latter. He's a transitional figure, you see, that God uses to bridge one era with the next. So he's the greatest and he's the least. And that's actually where the takeaway comes for us from this section. uh, Jesus' point here is not so much about John the Baptist as it is about the kingdom of God. And what the Lord wants us to understand is that while John the Baptist is great, those who belong to Christ's kingdom have tasted something better. To know Christ through the Gospel is the greatest spiritual blessing you can receive. It's the greatest spiritual reality you can know. You know sometimes I'll hear people say uh, to me, why don't we get to see amazing things today like what God did in the Old Testament? If we could only see something like the Red Sea crossing, then we'd really be blessed. Or if we only had the insight of Isaiah or Jeremiah or John the Baptist, then we could really know and follow God. We could really make a difference for His name. But friends, that mindset misses the greatness of God's kingdom. Jesus is saying that Moses would envy you. If given the opportunity, John would take your place and give you his. Listen, we can never say this enough, especially in days like ours. We can never say this enough. The greatest truth that God has ever revealed on earth is the incarnation of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The greatest act God has ever accomplished is the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. Friends, you don't need to see any other miracles. Look to Christ. There's nothing greater than what God has done in Him. And listen to me, brothers and sisters, this makes a practical difference in how you think about God and how you relate to Him. When you remember that Christ is the greatest blessing God can give, you can know without any doubt that God is not withholding anything good from you. Think about how powerful that is when hardships roll in. Think about how powerful that is today. We could lose everything we have, and still, we would have the Father's best. If the Lord were to call all of us home at this point, we would be able to stand before the Father and say, praise God, you withheld from us nothing good. You see, the gospel truth that we have in Christ is a shield against ever doubting the Father's love. And let me remind you, friends, that perfect love casts out all fear. So if your heart needs to be encouraged, look to the Father's love in Christ and remember that He has given you everything good. In fact, He has withheld from you nothing. The gospel truth we have in Christ, it's a guard against ever thinking that we need something more than the Lord Jesus. So John the Baptist was great, the greatest of the old era. But those who know Christ have tasted something better. That's the second truth here in Luke 7. The kingdom of God reveals to us the greatness and therefore the satisfaction and the comfort and the grace of knowing Christ. Let's look at the third and final truth from verses 29 to 35. The wisdom of God calls us to faith in the Lord Jesus. The wisdom of God calls us to faith in the Lord Jesus. Luke records a parenthetical comment in verses 29 and 30, and it captures the differing responses to John the Baptist's ministry. Verse 29, those who followed John affirm Jesus' view of him. They affirm that John was God's messenger. And in saying that, the crowd justifies God, Luke tells us. That means they agree that John's message lined up with God's truth. What Jesus says about John is true, and what John said about God is also true. And therefore, God is just and righteous in what He has revealed. That's what the crowd is saying. John's ministry fits with God's character. That's the positive response, verse 29. But verse 30 is entirely different. The Pharisees and the lawyers rejected John's ministry. And in doing so, Luke says, they rejected the purpose of God for themselves. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected what God revealed in and through John the Baptist. Clearly, Jesus tells us, God revealed His way of righteousness in John's ministry. So the religious leaders should have listened to John if they wanted to know God. But instead, the religious leaders rejected that purpose. They rejected God's revealed way of coming to Him. They refused to submit to God's purpose. That's the negative response. Verse 30. Now, that positive-negative contrast sets up the end of the whole passage. Beginning in verse 31, Jesus tells us a parable. And He uses this parable as a way of calling people to respond. Notice the parable in verses 31 and 32. It's a picture of complaining children 
who insist on getting their own way. Verse 31. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children, sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. Now, when you were a kid, did you ever have a friend who would only play the games that he got to pick? And did that friend only play those games if he also got to make the rules? And did those rules also change at a moment's notice if he wanted them to? Did you ever have a friend like that? Maybe you were that friend. I may have been that way. Please don't ask my sister. So you probably knew someone like that. And the problem with that kid is that he always has to be in charge. He always has to get his way. And that's the point of Jesus' parable. The Jewish religious leaders are like that annoying kid in the neighborhood who has to get his way all the time. They aren't interested in the truth. They're just interested in making sure that everybody knows they're in charge. Do what we say. They want to maintain their own position. And they want to make everybody else submit to them. And Jesus makes this very clear in verses 33 and 34. He makes it very clear that He's talking about the religious leaders. Notice how He applies the parable to the response that He and John have received. Verse 33, For John the Baptist has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man has come, eating and drinking, and you say, Look at Him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So you, you can hear the echoes of Jesus' parable there, can't you? You can hear the fickle, selfish, complaining attitude. The Pharisees rejected John because he was too strict. Weird diet, strange clothes, living in the wilderness. You can almost hear the Pharisees saying to John, why do you have to be so radical? Why can't you just be normal? Why preach with such a hard edge, telling people to repent all the time? But then Jesus comes, and the Pharisees change the rules of the game. Instead of playing the flute, now they sing the dirge. They say to Jesus, you're too lax. Look at you, hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. Why don't you preach more with an edge? Why don't you tell people to repent? You see, the parable indicts the religious leaders for how they've responded. They're not interested in the truth. They're not rejecting Jesus and John out of principle. It's just the opposite. They reject Jesus and John because they care about getting their own way. They care about protecting their own power. They're like the complaining children in the parable. Now, we could camp out on this for a minute and identify all the ways that the Pharisees are being childish. And while that might feel good uh, to our conscience, Jesus doesn't allow us to do that, friends. As He always does, Jesus turns this moment into a call for all of us to respond to Him. This is so key. Jesus is not merely correcting the religious leaders for correction's sake. He's calling everyone everywhere to respond to Him. Notice verse 35. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Friends, wisdom's children are those who respond rightly to Jesus. You see, verse 35 connects back to verse 29. Jesus is highlighting the wisdom of those who see God's purpose and respond with repentance and faith. And so, Jesus is urging us to respond to His message. Don't be like the childish religious leaders who insist on their own way. Don't be like those whose pride 
Don't miss that, friends. It was their pride that kept them from the truth. Don't be like those whose pride keeps them from the truth. Instead, humble yourself, Jesus tells us. Recognize the testimony of God's Word, how it reveals that Jesus is the Christ. Recognize that God's kingdom comes to the humble, to the lowly in spirit who trust only in Jesus. And then recognize that being a citizen of that kingdom is greater than anything this world can offer. Friends, this is an urgent call. Jesus is urging you today to respond to the wisdom of God. If you're not a Christian this morning, this is God's purpose that He has revealed for sinners like us. We cannot save ourselves. Life is fragile and we cannot save ourselves. We must humble ourselves, confessing our sin and trusting that Christ alone is able to save us. And so it is not an overstatement to say very directly that verse 35 is God's call to you this morning to respond to Him. If you don't know Christ, today is the day to hear His Word and respond to Jesus. Trust Him, friend, and find that God's wisdom leads you to know life and joy everlasting, regardless of this world, what this world might bring. As you respond to that call, friends, I want to remind all of us of how warmly Jesus welcomes those who need salvation. We'll close with this because it's the best news that sinners like us can ever hear. Notice who Jesus associates with in verse 34. Who are His friends? The tax collectors and the sinners, Luke tells us. Understand, those are the lowest of the low. Those are the kinds of people you cross to the other side of the street to avoid. Those are the sort of people you would never dream of having in your home. And yet, that's precisely the kind of people Jesus came to save. Those are the people whom Jesus called His friends. Brothers and sisters, that's you and me in verse 34. That's our hope, that Jesus befriends the lowest of the low. He doesn't leave us to suffer the consequences of our sin. He doesn't cross to the other side of the street to avoid us. He doesn't avert His eyes when we come into His presence. He doesn't despise us or look down on us. No, when we were at our worst, hating God and hating others, when we were at our worst, the Lord Jesus befriended us. He came to dwell among us. He obeyed God where we would not. He took our sins upon Himself at the cross. He bore those sins to the grave. And then with the kind of love that only Christ can show, He cleansed us by His blood of those sins, casting them as far as the east is from the west. And so as the old gospel song says, what a friend we have in Jesus. Trust Him, brothers and sisters. Trust Him today. Luke 7 is about Jesus' identity. And this passage in particular tells us that Jesus is the friend of sinners. Praise God. Won't you come to Him today in whatever way God is calling you? And won't you find that Christ's love for His people will sustain you no matter what today or tomorrow may bring? What a friend we have in Jesus. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You for Your Word. We thank You that the Lord Jesus Christ is the friend of sinners. We thank You that there is nothing better than knowing Christ our Lord. Help us, God. Encourage us. 
Strengthen our faith and assure us, Father, that your purposes stand firm no matter what the day brings. And we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.